Well, hello, and welcome to the Glimpse from the Globe podcast. My name is Luke Phillips. I am a senior correspondent at Glimpse from the Globe, and I'm recording from here at the USC Caruso Catholic Center. I am joined today by Glimpse from the Globe's newest correspondent, Spencer Slagowitz, straight out of Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Spencer, glad to have you here, and welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. So uh, the topic we're going to discuss today is uh, is a kind of an overview of some of the really deep trends in uh, in international political thought. Now, uh, any of my readers know that I am a realist, nationalist, uh, you name it, that kind of Machiavellian, uh, kind of Hamiltonian kind of strain. Um, Spencer comes from a very different perspective and tradition. Spencer, uh, if you'd like to give a brief overview of, uh, of your... Uh, your analytical framework. Yeah, so I, I, I would say I'm, a, uh, I, I'm an eclectic thinker, but I think that's quite a cop-out. Uh, I would say that more than anything else, uh, I am a, you know, uh, a, a, I, I follow in the liberal institutionalist tradition, but moreover, it's, it's, I accept the premises of realism as structural, uh, you know, uh, I, I accept the premises of structural realism uh, that, uh, you know, States are most likely egoists, uh, and that they will, you know, and that for the most part they will pursue their uh, own self-interest at the expense of other nations. But uh, the 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 centerpiece of sort of my thinking when it comes to international affairs is the idea that the greatest threats that the United States faces currently are those of you know a, a global or international nature that require global cooperation and uh, furthermore require uh, global institutions supported by the U.S. in order to solve. Uh, Go ahead. Which, uh, yeah. Well, so uh, I and I guess on that point, uh, I do buy into to some extent. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the the weeds of IR theory. Uh, you know, the 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 premise of social constructivism, insofar as I think norms and uh, uh, rules matter, and they help shape you know state behavior and human behavior. Uh, but other than that, I guess that that would be the you know, best summation I would give of my ideology currently. Well, you know, uh, everybody is a nuanced thinker. Nobody is a pure realist. Nobody is a pure internationalist. Nobody is a pure constructivist. I think it's more of a question of uh, how much of each particular school of thought uh, does your school does your way of thinking uh, balance out to. Uh, yeah, clearly, I, I'm more of a more of a nationalist, and you're more of an internationalist, and so I, I want to examine the dynamics of how that plays out in particular scenarios. So let's talk real quick then about the two big trade deals that are being negotiated right now by the United States: the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the uh, the Trans. Uh, let's see, TTIP. I forget what the the, the TTIP, whatever that uh, stands yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we're negotiating with the EU. Yeah. So, uh, what are your perspectives on that? Well, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, the TTP, the trans uh, sorry, the TPP, the Trans Pacific Partnership. Uh, well, my general argument is that mostly in the United States, in domestic politics, it's being discussed in primarily economic terms. You have you know uh, Bernie Sanders going up, you know, uh, uh, leading this uh, uh, rallying cry against the TTP, against you know, as as he says, NAFTA, CAFTA, and then PNTR, uh, and the new Donald Trump making trade the centerpiece of his understanding of the economy. And it's been mostly framed in economic terms. And I think that's fair. You know, I think that you know, we, we engage in these trade deals because they have economic benefits, and there are, there are economic cases made for and against it. But if you look at, the, uh, uh, at, at a lot of meta-analyses, you look at past trade deals, uh, they've been, you know, the economic consequences have been moderate for the most part. 
they have been, you know, either moderate one way or another. Uh, and to say that they're particularly consequential, I think would be imprudent. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to things like the TTIP and the TTP, I tend to urge a focus on the uh, the farm policy elements of the TTP, how it, it, it enhances uh, economic integration with, you know, uh, uh, Asia at large, you know, how this, you know, uh, functions to perhaps, you know, in realist terms, balance China and China's, China's efforts to uh, uh, create, you know, a regional economic order uh, uh, between Asian states uh, and seeing, you know, how, how the TTP advances and the TTIP advances our, uh, you know, uh, farm policy goals more than our economic goals, because I believe that the, the farm policy impact of the TTP is far more important, far more consequential than the economic impact necessarily. Yes, I think you're right, and uh, I um, I mean, I I come uh, I come at it from that perspective. I guess I'm a little bit more uh, more sympathetic to the Donald Trump Bernie Sanders view than you might be, um, in the fact that I think there have been trade deals that we've signed in the past, um, and I'm thinking NAFTA here, but I think also to a certain extent some of the arrangements we made in the early Cold War with Japan and Western Europe, um, that uh, that had a significant effect on. Uh, the U.S. manufacturing base. Now, I could care less about the jobs effect uh, that that has. Uh, I'm not a union scab who wants to like make sure that uh, my uh, my dues-paying members are fa- fat and happy and work two hours a day. My uh, my main concern has always been Hamiltonian on this issue. I am a big believer in the notion that uh, a country needs to have the instruments of production and the instruments of productivity based within the homeland because in the event that it gets into a shooting war with somebody else, you can't be buying your F-35s from whoever you're about to get into a shooting war with, or for that matter, your silicon chips and your uh, those things. The The thing with, uh, with globalization is our supply chains for building crucial pieces of military hardware, and for that matter, other strategic hardware like, uh, like energy resources and computer resources and stuff like that stretch halfway around the world. I think that's great if they're your allies, um, but you can't always uh, assume that your allies are going to remain your allies. And so, in my opinion, it's important to keep a critical sector of your manufacturing base within your nation. And that is one of the reasons why I consider myself a nationalist. What are your thoughts on that, though? Well, uh, my, my, my first thought on it is that I agree. You know, I think there are legitimate security concerns when it comes to uh, global trade and when it comes to manufacturing. Uh, you know, the fact is, is that, yeah, you know, you can't trust states to be your allies forever. Uh, but I would contend that one of the reasons we're able to produce, you know, the, 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 you know, mil- the high tech military hardware that we, we are able to do is because of these global supply chains. And that what, one of the things you saw, you've seen from, you know, the consequences of globalization and global trade has been these like massive logistical chains, uh, you know, that companies like, you know, Walmart put together. To ensure that you know the cheapest goods are you know put in American stores, and I think that is an immense boon. Uh, and on the question of manufacturing, uh, I contend to some extent that I, I I think that manufacturing jobs have gone down, uh, but I don't think manufacturing as a whole in the United States has really uh, declined significantly. Especially because you know I think that a lot of our manufacturing jobs have been you know, replaced by technology and replaced by you know more automated methods. You have the you know uh, the biggest you know uh, factory in the world is in the United States, and the, the biggest one that's going to be uh, uh, constructed uh, is also going to be the United States as well, that's currently being constructed. Uh, I think that, you know, it is, uh, there's just been, I don't think it's a, a, a total myth, but it has been uh, 
inflated this idea that we have really a lost a core part of the manufacturing sector. And then uh, uh, I think lastly, to uh, address almost an, uh, an economic issue, uh, I think that uh, primarily at least, we are we've become a service-based economy. Uh, so that when we're when we're concerned with how are we going to bring jobs back to America, how are we going to you know uh, 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 bring back American prosperity uh, and generate economic growth, we should be concerned with you know uh, uh, the service industry rather than uh, concerned with manufacturing jobs. Uh, and while I think that you know, yes, there there are concerns when it comes to the development of military hardware, uh, there's stuff the United States can do. Uh, that can you know, promote trade in other areas and other sectors, but you know, have the manufacturing or military hardware uh, solely for the United States. So I, I don't think that uh, uh, it is a necessary consequence of uh, globalization and global trade that you know, uh, those, those sorts of security concerns. The, uh, the third way think tank uh, a couple months ago published a paper saying that manufacturing is changing, but it's not necessarily getting sucked away. And I think that's exactly right. It's, uh, it, you mentioned automation. You mentioned a lot of technological changes. And for the most part, it's machines doing this kind of stuff rather than, uh, rather than steel workers doing this kind of stuff. So, uh, so yeah, the, uh, the base is still there. I, again, I, I maintain my concerns about uh, keeping the supply chain within the homeland. But uh, with a, with a bit, an alliance network as big as the United States alliance network is, that becomes somewhat less of a problem. Still something of a problem, but not as big of a problem. Uh, I want to shift the conversation a little bit, though, uh, from, uh, from manufacturing and trade over to uh, a, a very contested international issue, the issue of climate change. Now, the Paris Climate Accords were signed and, uh, last year, I believe, and it's, uh, and it's generated no small amount of controversy within the American community. You have Hillary Clinton very much in favor. You have Donald Trump very yeah. much opposed. Um, uh, and uh, so one of the things I was wondering about your thinking is, is the Paris mode of climate combat uh, the, uh, the best way to go about that at an international scale? And uh, I mean, I think international cooperation is a given. Uh, but uh, but is that is uh, that regulatory approach one of the ways you think that nations can cooperate at a transnational level to solve transnational threats? Look, I think uh, one of the uh, I agree with you at base level. You have to have international cooperation to you know, achieve any uh, uh, sorts of gains when it comes to mitigating climate change and you know, uh, 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 preventing uh, you know, the, the the true horrors of it. Uh, but I think, to some extent, you, we we have seen we've uh, we're facing an issue of the credibility of nations in terms of complying with the uh, you know, uh, the the Paris Agreement. Uh, I recently listened to Susan Rice, and the uh, Susan Rice as well as the administration touts the agreement as one of their uh, you know, largest accomplishments. And at this point, uh, I think that's a, it, it's quite premature. You know, we we have seen. You know, uh, uh, some nations making you know, some efforts to uh, do some constructive work on climate change, uh, but we have not seen any of the nations we truly care about. You know, in terms of China, we had a massive, you know, uh, I think, you know, bilateral deal with them in order to reduce emissions. We've seen them start to do you know, some things when it comes to the reductions of their emissions. They implemented a, uh, a, I think, a new uh, leading indicator uh, for their you know, different uh, regions and provinces where you know, regional governors uh, that take into account you know, emissions and the impact on the climate. Uh, but I think when it, uh, there, there, there's, there's an incredibly important issue, uh, which is one, ensuring that states comply, 
And then two, ensuring that, you know, uh, uh, what we would call developing states uh, who, who have mostly pushed back on these agreements because uh, the United States has, uh, is, is demanding that they do not, you know, develop, that they do not uh, uh, industrialize the way the U.S. and other you know, countries allow work. You look, look at all the BRICS nations, you see India and you see China pushing back in these climate agreements because they you know, feel that their economy is being uh, unfairly restricted and they are not able to industrialize to the same extent that you know, Britain was and the United States was. And uh, I think the claims that this is unfair, uh, even though fair is a normative judgment, it's very true. And I, but when it comes to the international stage, uh, when you know, fairness is a concern and we we're and, and the success of these uh, deals are dependent on their cooperation. Uh, you see uh, those types of nations really, you know, uh, uh, you, you see that sort of the argument being a main stumbling block to uh, uh, effective international cooperation. Yeah, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of the, of the Paris method of, do, of uh, combating climate change. I uh, remain a... Uh, technophile on this kind of uh, kind of regard and so uh, so my my proposed solution has always been uh, you know it's, it is somewhat internationalist too actually um, but it's always been uh, find a way to make either renewables cheap if you're going to go that route or I think more easily uh, find a way to nuclear. make nuclear cheap yeah nuclear nuclear energy and you look at what the Chinese are doing um, and they have something like 20% of their energy being generated by nuclear plants. That's doing a lot more for uh, for uh, curbing their emissions than just the um, just the regulatory framework that says thou shalt emit 20% of the coal emissions uh, from last year, kind of thing. You know, so uh, so in my opinion, uh, there um, the regulatory framework has to be part of it, but it can't be the only solution. It like most things in human affairs a mixed solution with a mixed way of going about things that includes both, uh, both some kinds of voluntary reductions and uh, ways to make the technology cheaper uh, is probably a way to do that. And I think there is room for international cooperation on that. But I think that's not going to be the, the, the reason, the reason uh, India and China, and for that matter, uh, Texas, are going to uh, to uh, support efforts to curb climate change is not going to be out of some uh, some uh, Californian kind of dream about um, <laughs> about leading the world in the fight for humanity's future. I think it's going to be more about a question of well, we can have power really, really cheap and have the EPA regulators stop hounding us if we use nuclear power, kind of thing. You know, so I think uh, there's yeah, uh, there's room for international cooperation. And you know, back in the fifties, we had atoms for peace. We had uh, the expansion of nuclear power around the world. And I feel like there's been a uh, a kind of um, post uh, post Chernobyl, post Fukushima, post Three Mile Island. There's been a kind of backlash against that, which is in some ways justified. But I think ultimately, if there's going to be uh, an international uh, fight against climate change, um, which is very popular and a lot of people, especially in the elites, want it, uh, we need to look at other methods than just pure regulatory and voluntary uh, ways of going against it. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I just want to clarify that you know, uh, your sort of approach to issues like the Paris climate deal. Uh, is that you know that cooperation has to be premised on you know some sort of coercion of these other countries or you know, some sort of incentive structure where they have to partake, and to some extent I agree. I think there are you know when it comes to their reticence concerning uh, you know their ability to develop, I think that you know we have to provide them. They're, they're, you know, uh, countries are not just going to you know willingly accept 
that they are are not going to develop. They're not going to you know uh, provide uh, economic prosperity to their citizenry. Uh, I don't think that's uh, legitimate. But I think that there are uh, that countries see climate change and uh, as a you know a a threat to not only global order but uh, you know to themselves. Uh, and I think that that you know uh, that the one argument that I would make over you know totally seeing this as a you know a question of how do we coerce these different actors is that I believe that countries do have a vested interest in cooperation on climate change. Now I I, I resist the temptation to you know uh, uh, bring up Iran when it comes to atoms for peace, <laughs> but uh, uh, because I think I think that the the spread of nuclear technology is is a boon. But one thing I'm most worried about is that at the same time as we have this question of, you know, how do we implement uh, new technologies? How do we, you know, uh, make, how do we uh, uh, establish energy security and how do we prevent climate change? You have, you know, uh, the rate of uh, uh, the development of new energy technologies has really uh, uh, declined. And this is uh, Robert Gordon's you know, uh, main thesis in, you know, uh, the rise and fall of American growth, uh, especially looking forward is that when you, know, you look at uh, uh, developments, especially in the energy sector, in which, you know, for uh, uh, a so-called platform and platform technologies, you've seen this, you know, massive decline in uh, a technological development. And that, and that truly worries me, uh, especially for, you know, those who uh, say that climate change is all right, uh, you know, we have amazing technological growth. We're going to get some amazing fuel uh, that's going to come out, you know, in the next couple of centuries, uh, and that's going to spread across the economy, and everything will be fine. When, you know, the world's not going to end. What the hell are you talking about? And I, I don't think that's a fair uh, contention. And I think I'm, uh, I'm, I might be tilting at windmills here, but uh, to quickly address that, uh, the fact is, is that you have this amazing research going into biofuels, right? But one, we have not figured out how we're going to scale that up. Two, we have no idea. Once we do scale up, we make it you know, affordable. How that's going to be able to be uh, uh, filtered across the economy, at least domestically, or across the world. If you look at the United States, you look at electricity. Factories didn't get you know uh, all the factories uh, in the United States didn't get fully electrified until about mid-century, and that took you know an incredibly a, a long amount of time for these you know uh, for these technologies to be uh, you know diffused across the economy. So one of the things we have to often be concerned about is the diffusion of technology. Uh, so uh, to that end, I think that, one, the United States ought to put a lot of research into, you know, uh, renewable energy, into, you know, uh, uh, new forms of technology. Uh, I believe uh, the there's the, uh, uh, I believe, economist uh, Melissa Mancusato, I think I'm butchering her name, but, uh, you know, uh, she wrote this phenomenal book on how really this this idea of the U.S. as uh, being you know uh, and as a public sector being a terrible place for you know research and development uh, really isn't true. You know, you look at Gorilla Glass, you look at you know uh, uh, the fracking boom in the United States, perhaps the most uh, s- most significant, uh, very very recent uh, development in terms of energy uh, that came from uh, uh, research that was funded by the U.S. government. So the U.S. The US and uh, uh, the government has a a, in my in my opinion, has a pretty clear role to play when it comes to researching, uh, you know, into new technologies and making renewables more affordable, and in terms of diffusing uh, these technologies across the country. But as as you said, across the globe, uh, I think that it's only through uh, the impl- implementation of uh, nuclear power and renewables side by side, which we're going to achieve uh, 
uh, global uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions reductions. No, droning on, but as last point, you know, we see uh, this remarkable uh, trend where it used to be that reductions to uh, carbon emissions had come at the cost of GDP. But now when we see the implementation of nuclear energy, we see the implementation of, uh, of renewable energy, especially in the case of Sweden, we see this divergence that you can reduce your carbon emissions with you know positive GDP growth and robust growth of that. And I think what, what that says to me is that it, this is going to be a far easier sell to these developing countries uh, than we thought it would be. That you know, there isn't this hard trade-off between you know, uh, GDP growth and stopping climate change. And I think that now we have the ability to say that. And it's necessary for international institutions, international regimes at that, to you know, diffuse these technologies. Well, I hope you're right, and I think there is a lot of reason to believe that uh, that the uh, further development of uh, of technological research will help with a lot of this. I wanna um, wa- uh, wanna uh, push to uh, one last topic before we wrap up here. Uh, uh, as you're very well aware, uh, there was just the uh, the referendum in Colombia, where the people of Colombia effectively rejected. Uh, the peace deal that the government had uh, had uh, negotiated with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, which was going to end a 52-year war. Um, now that's up in the air, and we have no idea if the ceasefire is going to hold. Second off, Brexit. Brexit happened, uh, God, it was a couple months ago now, huh? Uh, and uh, that is a... Um, uh, that uh, that sent shockwaves throughout the Western world. Oh my gosh! There's uh, the European project is changing up, uh, and now me, a nationalist, I don't necessarily agree with all of the rationales that went behind either of those. But as a believer in popular sovereignty, and as a believer in the notion that a people's self determination sometimes has to have at least a significant say in how they are governed. Uh, I think it's important that the elites of those countries and, frankly, of the rest of the countries around the world uh, bear in mind the, uh, the concerns that their populations have uh, in, in governance. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily look like the international institutionalist uh, kind of model. Sometimes it does look like a more blood and soil nationalism. I, will, I wanted to know your reaction, though, to, uh, to the Columbia referendum and to the British referendum. Well, I think uh, not only the Columbia referendum and and Brexit, as it were, but uh, you know the elections in Austria, where a you know neo-Nazi party uh, barely lost, barely lost, which uh, you know seems remarkable given the uh, the, the legacy of uh, Nazism uh, in Austria. Uh, same thing with Poland, with uh, you know uh, peace, just uh, law and justice party, and you know the massive constitutional crisis they had there. And then furthermore, you know you look to Turkey, which was you know it uh, uh, it was already becoming more and more authoritarian. But you really have this uh, you know this populist authoritarian movement behind Erdogan. Uh, and then you see, you know, even in France, uh, and I think France is the best uh, I think proxy, uh, you know, for these. Uh, and nationalist movements, because uh, France was the creator of the, uh, it views itself as the creator of the European project, as the country who was the most devoted to it and really brought together the European Union. And you actually see, you see the uh, National Front uh, becoming more and more powerful. You see that uh, Pew polls that suggest that the majority of you know, French people uh, would uh, you know, vote uh, yes in a referendum uh, that stated, you know, would you want to leave the EU? And lastly, the historic gap between, you know, uh, the 
people who identify as uh, uh, Front National uh, members and those who actually vote Front National has 100% narrowed. So you've seen that you, uh, uh, well, that shows me is that a lot of these uh, far right parties and far right movements, they've gotten credence. They have, you know, this, this popular support. And the question is, you know, what can you do about them? Uh, and I agree. You know, countries are willing to, uh, uh, individuals and populations are willing to, you know, uh, uh, make the trade-offs uh, that they want to make. You know, uh, if I'm in Russia and, you know, Putin comes to me and, you know, this is, this is 100% idealized, it, it, you know, uh, and Putin says, you know, you can give up some of your rights, uh, and, you know, for greater security, for greater prosperity. You know, if you want to make that trade-off, you're allowed to make that trade-off. But, you know, then there's also the issues of, you know, uh, uh, the state, uh, the state, you know, exerting control over elections, uh, you know, state media, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, that, that obfuscates it. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, the, what, what, what do these, you know, national popular movements mean? What are they agitating for? I, I, I balk at the suggestion that uh, it is primarily economic phenomenon. I think that you know uh, economic shocks have played a role in it, but uh, two things cause me to doubt that you know the 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 uh, I think I read the um, this great article. Uh, it was uh, the discontents of uh, techno globalism. Uh, you know the the so-called Trumpian proletariat, uh, as it were. Uh, the Trumpian proletariat. Uh, I don't think it's motivated necessarily by economic concerns. Why? Because you know, you see the Pew and Gallup polls and the research done uh, by uh, political scientists, which suggests that you know uh, Trump voters are you know not more likely than Hillary voters or you know uh, those who are not Trump voters uh, to have been affected by you know uh, globalization or you know job loss. Uh, I think secondarily. Uh, you see the issue of Scandinavian, uh, you know, Scandinavian countries, where they have this, you know, the same popular uh, a movement when they were not actually, you know, hit as hard by globalization. They uh, don't have as great you know, issues of inequality, uh, and you don't see them engaging in the same peace deals, and they're they're hailed at this as as these you know, social democratic havens. Uh, it seems to suggest that you know, economic issues perhaps were a precipitating cause in the United States, about the main cause. But I will, I will contend that, yeah, you know, when people agitate uh, politically for something, it's worth listening to them. And I think there is definitely a case that people feel like they're being left behind, that there's this general feeling that the government isn't doing enough for people. And I think it's based in real material concerns that the government ought to be concerned about. I think when you, if you look at Angus Deaton's research, at, uh, uh, I think uh, so. I, I wouldn't say that uh, it's just his research. I think uh, his wife was actually the primary author. Uh, that you see the rate of you know, suicide among you know, white working class men has skyrocketed. At the same time, you see a lot of uh, Robert Putnam's work, which suggests that you know, the social institutions and social fabric of our society has really you know uh, collapsed. And I think that those are in. Well, and then, and then, lastly, you see the incredibly high you know, rates of you know, opioid addiction in the Adirondacks among communities which are predominantly you know, white uh, working class. I think there are incre- you know, incredibly you know, poignant and compelling reasons to believe uh, that individuals you know, rationally feel uh, you know, left behind by the government, and I think that you know, the government ought to, you know. You know, robustly intervene to you know prevent opioid addiction, resolve what is a national health crisis. I think the government ought to you know uh, uh, does have a role, or at least you know we uh, uh, I think uh, organizations in general in trying to you know uh, 
support you know, uh, cities and towns in which uh, the social fabric of their entire society and their, the economic fabric has collapsed as a result. Uh, I think that those are compelling governmental interests. And I think that if we just sit by and we uh, – I, I, I think the true uh, evils of globalist you know, elitism, as it were, and I really hate to use the term elitism, is the fact that we, we have you – know, these sorts of issues have gone mostly ignored by uh, our leaders in Washington. That the question is not you know of popular sovereignty and railing against institution uh, uh, elites can you know uh, global elites controlling us from international institutions. It's the it's our you know the real question is how do we solve these very real and significant uh, domestic issues that the government has largely ignored, uh, and I think that that's the greatest challenge. It's not a question of international scope. Uh, I don't think that that necessarily matters. I think that is a, a outlet for uh, anger and discontent and, and, and disaffection. I think the root cause and how we are going to improve the standard of living for Americans and, and try to bring prosperity back to these areas is by addressing these pretty significant domestic issues and, and you know, uh, make people see that government can be a force for good, uh, that the government has a role in mitigating some of these problems. Well, we are just about out of time, but this uh, has called up so many other questions that would be worth maybe a whole other conversation. Uh, and you know what? We should probably plan on doing a uh, like quote unquote the meaning of Trump kind of kind of thing, or the meaning of Brexit, or the meaning of the right wing populist parties uh, sometime in the near future, because I think we can get a lot out of the, that conversation. Until then, Spencer, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, listeners, thank you very much for listening in, and we look forward to hear to talking to you next time. Uh, till then, have a good time.